This is Andercast, inspiring business stories from the UCLA community without the tuition costs. All right, welcome to another edition of Andercast. I'm your host, Mike Chester, and my guest today is one of the most beloved professors at UCLA Anderson, Eric Sussman. He is an adjunct professor in accounting and real estate, and Business Week recognized him as one of the 10 most popular business school professors in the country. He is also the president or manager of multiple real estate investment funds, which altogether have invested in over 2 million square feet of residential and commercial real estate. Thanks for joining me, Eric. So I wanted to jump right into real estate. Sure. I'm, I'm fascinated by the industry, dying to get involved. What is the best entry point for someone getting into real estate investing? I'm talking lowest investment cost, best return. What do you got? Oh my gosh. You didn't prep me at all for these tough questions. And that is a... Uh... If I had the answer to that question, I probably wouldn't be sitting here with you. But um, let's be let's be candid. That that is a very challenging issue this day, given affordability. I, I guess if, look in general, if anyone's trying to get started in the industry, the the best advice I could possibly give is just to first of all to read everything you can about the industry, and most likely to work for somebody else. Uh, if I look back at my own career. I worked for someone else out of business school for a little while, started my own firm in 1994. And looking back, I wish I had worked for someone else maybe a little bit longer. If you're, your, your question is kind of funny to me because it sort of sounds like a lot of these get rich schemes. Well, you know, how do bit. I, yeah, I know, you know, so you see these guys, the late night infomercial uh, on, on, some, uh, on, some, uh, on some boat or something telling you how to get rich, rich quick in real estate. And, and that just doesn't really it just doesn't really exist. The buy-in is too high. You're talking about illiquid assets in general. And let's be candid, where we are in the cycle right now, we've had you know, basically a decade of economic growth and prices are high basically everywhere. So look, if you're talking about starting point, the key is with any investment, you got to be a contrarian and try to invest where people are not. Um, where is that right now? Right. Well, that's it. So where, where is that? Where is that? I would say if you had to rank the, the asset classes that are least in favor, I would say, of course, retail. There's going to be a lot of money made and probably lost in the repurposing of retail shopping centers, the dead retail spaces. So all you uh, former Payless Shoes shoppers, you'll find uh, vacant space there. Um, and the question is what to do with that space. Yeah. So look, people that can think creatively on those kind of projects probably can do very well. I don't play in that sandbox. Uh, as many of you know, my life is mostly residential real estate. And if I knew of how to get rich quick uh, in that market, Today, well, that's a tough question. I'm not sure I have an easy answer for you, unfortunately. It's, that's, uh, that's disappointing. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, you guys. You're going to have to go out there and, and, and you're work your way and slog through it like the rest of us. Um, it's, <laughs> so, it's tough. So speaking of residential, as I drive through L.A., everywhere you look, there's a high-rise apartment building being built. Are you concerned about an oversupply in the market? Not in Southern California, actually. While, yeah, that's true, there are plenty of cranes right now if you drive around certain parts of LA. If you look at the overall impact on the residential market, it's, it's a blip. The supply, for real intents and purposes, is fixed in Los Angeles. It's a drop in the bucket. The other thing you have to realize is those units, whether they may have some units set aside for affordable units, they're mostly high-end Units, which is not where the demand is really. The demand is really the problem with the market is is on the, the working class. If you talk to me about other markets, and we certainly can, uh, supply is more of a concern in some of those other markets. 
you can close your eyes and imagine where land is available and uh, some markets in Texas, Denver, Atlanta. Those are markets that are den- uh, more susceptible to oversupply just because there's land availability. But Southern California, yeah, that, that, that part's not an, an issue. I don't see greater price appreciation, but I, the, supply, the supply side is not the issue in uh, Southern California. So you mentioned affordability. Is it right to be concerned that a large portion of my generation may never be able to own a home? Do you think that's a real problem? Or maybe we just don't save enough? No, it is. Look, honestly, for all of you out there, I, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news and sobering news, but it is a problem. It's not going to get it any better. It's global. In fact, for those of you who have a global perspective, this is not just a Southern California or a primary markets problem. Berlin, for example, I just read an article on Berlin. Berlin has a terrible affordability problem. London, other markets. A couple of thoughts about it. One, I know that's sobering news and maybe disappointing to a lot of us who have our sights set on what was historically the American dream and owning our own homes and all of that. But you have to sort of take a broader perspective as an MBAs, we're trying to train to do that. The United States housing market formed in a very unusual and atypical way. And what we're finding now is a mature economy is that we're going to be like the rest of the world, which is higher density housing, multiple generations living under one roof. And there will be perhaps a number of you and those similarly situated, you're right, who will be lifelong renters. Part of that, if I just sort of ramble a little bit, part of it also is, is, is because the job market has changed. I mean, maybe not your parents, maybe it was your grandparents, but certainly like my parents' generation. It was not uncommon for people to work for one company their entire career until they got a pension. That's great for neighborhoods. That's great for home ownership. It's great for stability. Your generation is different. You guys are taking multiple jobs in multiple places. You're moving all over the joint. Some of you will live overseas. Some of you are going to live in probably before the time you're 35 and maybe you have three different jobs. That is a very different dynamic and I think also changes whether it makes sense for you all to own homes. There's pluses and minuses to that. But the short answer to your question is it's a serious issue. It's of concern. But I would tell you the wealth and equality in this country is a much broader issue to me than just purely the lack of affordability in housing. So that's that's part of a much broader issue. So speaking of the, the idea of moving around a lot, let's imagine you're an MBA grad, you're moving to a new city, not sure how long you're going to stay there, but assume probably at least three years. Let's assume you also do have the cash for a down payment. Would you buy or lease? Lease. So over, look, over the, over the years, um, a lot of you have come to my office hours and asked me that question and for advice on whether you should buy or whether you should lease. I'm happy to do that, by the way. You guys are welcome to come by my office hours at any time to talk real estate or anything else. Just bring a bottle of your favorite red. <laughs> but in, in all seriousness, I, what I, the first question I ask people as I'm going through, going through and kind of getting nosy, because I think to give you all advice that I think is good advice or the best advice I can give, I have to be sort of nosy. If you tell me that you don't think you're going to be in that city or that location for at least five years, I always say rent. Partly, again, to stop, step back, y'all, is the transaction costs are high. It's one thing that has been very sticky when it comes to real estate investing, including single family, is commissions, transaction costs, title, escrow, and on and on. It's not like trading stock through Schwab and you're paying you know, 10 bucks to move whatever money you want. It's much more expensive. You're already in the hole 5 to 10% before you say go. Now, the markets have been robust and great, but I wouldn't want to start with that kind of load and knowing I got to pay it on both the buy and the sell. 
Um, and so I usually tell you guys to rent. Flexibility is key. Take that money and you guys are MBAs. You can hopefully do other good things with it. And the opportunity cost is high. So that's a, that's a fair question. But I would tell all of you guys, if, if you're not going to be staying in, the, in a place for at least five years, rent. And those are that are maybe again single. You know, you never know who you might meet. <laughs> and, yeah. and hopefully they're real estate rich. Yeah. So you can move into their place. Um, just flexibility is is understated and uh, underappreciated as a real key when you're looking for housing. So talk to me about your multifamily playbook. What are you looking for in a potential property? Oh, Lord. What am I looking for uh, in a potential property? Probably what everyone listening to this is looking for. I'm looking for opportunity in a nutshell. Our, it's, it's a great question. Look, part of it is the, the, the nature of our firm and how it's changed. When I started our company, or at least predecessor company in, in the early 90s, the market was so different than it is today. And we were buying mostly infill, value-add deals in Koreatown and Hollywood and Echo Park and Silver Lake in these markets that really were a little rough on the edges and hadn't quite gentrified that magic word. That has changed. And our firm has grown now for better or worse. So it, it, it's a little tricky. So now our, our, we're looking for projects that are much larger, usually um, 30 to $75 million projects. And so that has changed a lot of what we're looking for. I can tell you that there's sort of a bifurcated strategy. I do look for projects where there's some kind of arbitrage or upside opportunity. With rent control and expanding rent control, we can talk about that. That's gotten trickier. There may be some opportunities with Airbnb or VRBO and sort of converting projects in some markets where you can arbitrage some upside that way. There may be some other niches. Real estate's gotten very niche So whether it's senior students, even segmenting within those niches, I think there's going to be some opportunity in there, which is way different than when I started, where it was like shooting fish in a barrel. The world has changed, so it's gotten a lot tougher. So I saw you recently start investing in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Is that new? Well, right. So our firm, uh, as I said, started out really doing SoCal. That was our thing. We had... Tons of buildings, not lots of units, but tons of buildings in Southern California because that's the L.A. market. The L.A. market is really, and most of you, even if you're not from L.A., have had a chance to drive around while you're a student. And if you just drive around, I don't care, it's Brentwood, Hollywood, those markets I mentioned, Silver Lake, uh, K-Town, you'll notice you're talking mostly low-rise, 12 to 20 units, really low density, and that's, um, that's L.A., and maybe you not to sneeze at $5 million, but let's say you're buying this $5 million, whatever the number happens to be. If you've got, if you're managing money for others and you've got enough investors, unfortunately, you can't scale in Los Angeles very easily. You're really forced to go to those markets like, I mentioned a few of them, Atlanta, Denver, Dallas, Austin, Fort Worth, some other Dallas markets, uh, Nashville, Charlotte, where you've got the ability to put a lot more money out because the project sizes are much larger. Texas, of course, had lots of land. If you talk about Dallas, Fort Worth specifically, I just read in the Dallas, uh, one of the Dallas papers that more Californians moved to Dallas in 2017 than any other market in the country. That's interesting. Low cost of housing, no state taxes, low regulation. And you guys know a lot of employers have moved there. You guys probably know really well. Uh, uh, Toyota moved to Plano. Uh, several other big employers have moved out of California, relocating into, into Texas for those reasons. So... Look, there, that comes with some risk. That comes with some 
uh, as much opportunity as it does other things you got to be careful about uh, when you talk about Dallas-Fort Worth, but um, we, and we can talk more about it. But So part of it was just the nece- out of necessity because we kind of had to move in other markets. I saw the job growth in that market, which I like a lot. Uh, land costs and traffic in Dallas are getting worse and worse, which was not always the case. So I feel like Dallas-Fort Worth is on the cusp of sort of becoming, you know, really more of a primary market. Um, but there'll be some speed bumps on the way, as there always are when you're looking at new markets. So as you purchase a multifamily property, um, you, you put a lot of work into renovating, kind of upgrading the amenities. How do you go about thinking about amenities, um, like a pool or gym? Like, what do you think are like the best value add? I think that's very, it's a great question. That, I think that's very project specific, so it's hard to generalize. What I, what I would tell anyone who, who's looking to upgrade properties, and a lot of you will probably do that maybe on a smaller scale, and some of you guys might be doing it for a career at some point, which is terrific. You really have to look at the target market. Who are your target tenants? Start there. I mean, look, you guys have all had great training. As I joked in class last week, if I mentioned the words primary research, you'll probably want to strangle me for those of you at AMR or BCO or, or GAP or whatever. But you've got to start there. Who is your target market? Because the answer to your question depends very much on who are you renting to, right? For our generation and you know you guys too. Why, actually, the most important features are Wi-Fi and pet parks now. I mean, Interesting. you guys, Jesus, you love your pets. I think you love your pets more than you love humans. I'm a, I'm a big fan of my pets. Exactly. You guys, creative office. It's like a, it's like the kennel half the time. So look, my generation <laughs> love pets and dogs too. You guys take it to the extreme. You're having fewer children. Your generation is having fewer kids. And I think substituting that a little more of the dog and cat thing, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But what we're finding is every project we buy now, it's, it's where we can put the pet park. Do we have room to put a pet park? Because the tenants go orgasmic over that stuff. And I'm like, you know, when I was leasing units back when I was, you know, my 20s and 30s, that wasn't even in my wheelhouse. But Wi-Fi and pet parks, as far as other amenities, it really is specific, you know, project specific. Whether you can put in a gym, pools are usually a waste. They take up way too much space. Uh, There's liability. So insurance is a big thing. Um, Now, of course, let's face it. If you go to the really high-end projects in a lot of cities, you've got Super nice pools. Yeah. In Southern California, are you kidding? The land is too valuable. Texas, different ballgame. It's a great question. It's very much project specific. I would tell you guys, you've all been trained to think about market research and your and how to make your customers happy. And so start with your customers and what do they want? Again, if you're doing senior housing, obviously they're looking at things differently than students. That's probably two bookends and other projects are in the middle. So it, it sort of just uh, just depends. <laughs> so you brought up rent control earlier. Oh, um, God. Really interested to get your thoughts on the topic. You know, first of all, if you're going to bring up rent control, you could have at least brought me a, a shot of tequila <laughs> or, or a, 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 an old-fashioned or something. All right. Well, again, and I spent a lot of time talking about it in class. Uh, affordability is without question the single most troubling and problematic area in all of residential real estate. I'm sure all of you listening to this podcast are gonna, you know, are not going to argue with me. So then you sort of think about how do you address the issue. The problem fundamentally is politicians are not exactly long-term, strategic, out-of-the-box thinkers. And rent control is usually the easiest or at least this most simple way to think about how to deal with it, at least from their thinking, right? Oh, we'll just put price caps. And, and, and you all probably know from your econ classes and everything else that those kinds of things just don't work. They just are failures in policy. I always said, look, economists 
may not agree on uh, on a lot. There's that old uh, that old joke that you should cut off every economist's left hand so that they can't say on the other hand. Because it's true, it's not. It's always a lot of gray. Economists actually pretty much across the board, like 99% agree that rent control does not work. It's like climate change, okay, climate scientists. But politicians love easy solutions that they can sell to their constituents. And so look, rent control is here, it's gonna be expanded. Oregon just passed statewide rent control, the first state to do that. Uh, Inglewood passed emergency rent control. Beverly Hills is now expanding their rent control. And you can bet that is a, uh, a influenza that will be contagious across the country. And it will fail. Um, what would you do instead? Well, right. So that's something else we talk about. It's, what I talk about doing is, is the right solution, but it takes an expansion of public-private partnership. It, ex it, it requires politicians to think long-term and to come up with money. Because there are economic sticks and there are economic carrots. And we talk about that in class. And I'm sure you may have heard it from other profs or books that you've read in, in economics. Economic carrots are incentives, right? It's the, I would say, for those of you who have kids and, you know, maybe your parents like this, look, if you get an A and you get all straight A's, you know, I'll, I'll buy you a used car or I'll get you something. And you know, there's some kind of incentives. The, the stick is, if you don't get A's, I'm going to punish you, Okay. Rent control, inclusionary zoning, where developers are required to set aside units for, that are affordable. Again, it sound good in principle. And to the extent that people are really trying to solve the problem, I don't get upset about it. It just doesn't work. It's the carrots. It's saying, look, landlord, look, developers, if you lease these units to people who can't afford, either we'll give you subsidies. That's sort of the basis of Section 8 housing. We'll give you property tax abatements or some other property tax incentives uh, or tax incentives to do that. That will work because that's where you're, you're basically having a landlord look. We don't, we're not trying to curtail your economic returns. I mean, capitalism does work. It's a reason that it exists and why it is the best system. It's not perfect. We all agree with that. And I believe in sort of, I call it welfare capitalism. So how you do that is you create those capitalistic fundamentals, foundations, but you then incent the right behavior through economic carrots. That requires funding. That requires local, state, federal funding and dollars, whether it's HUD, whether it's your local housing agencies, to actually help through taxation and other wealth redistribution to incent landlords to build more housing and all that. And one last thing, we need more supply. Going back to one of your first questions, right? I mean, it's economics 101. The demand for housing in California is always going to be high. Where the hell else can you ski, surf, and buy cannabis all within an hour or two? I mean, you know, come on, that's like heaven. So the demand's going to be there, right? There's no question. It's Silicon Valley's always going to have that alert for tech. Okay, so it's a supply issue. We need more housing. We need more density. We got to get rid of parking restrictions. I mean, Architects, the first damn thing they look at when you bring them a parcel is what's the zoning and then parking. Okay, well, that's back-ass backwards now in the age of Uber, Lyft, scooters, and, and, share, and hopefully autonomous driving. We need to get people out of their cars, increase housing density so we get more people affordable housing. Anyways, that's my spiel, and now I need that drink. <laughs> and when you talk about incentivizing landlords by, by having them rent the housing out to, to those less fortunate, do you envision those as like separate buildings or like certain units in the, the same building? Yeah, okay. That whole idea of what's called the poor door, okay, that's the expression we use where you, yeah, okay, we're going to have lower income folks living with those that market rents and 
yeah, you're gonna have a separate entrance, separate units. I'm a I'm a I'm a California liberal. Okay, that's bullcrap. Okay, that's ridiculous. You, you know, separate but equal. I mean, give me a break. So I, no, you you have to. We have to get everyone living together. Uh, the question is, how do we incent those behaviors and 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 whatnot? Maybe there's some vetting that the landlord has to do to make sure that yeah, we don't we want to make sure that. We have a, a safe and secure building with all the tenants and all that. But whether the, the income should be the least determinative factor. Look, I have had, and we accept Section 8 at, I think, virtually all of our buildings. And by and large, I could tell you, at least in our experience, when we vet the tenants, all of them, we probably have as many problems with our low-income tenants as we do with our with you clowns, okay? Yeah. Uh, I don't buy that notion. Uh, that's good management. Look, if people aren't breaking the rules, I don't care if they're affordable. I don't care if they're, if they're you know, the offspring of Jeff Bezos. You, you know, look, we all live by the same rules. We should. And landlords should evict those tenants that aren't playing by those rules if they're creating problems. You know, so I'm not, you're not going to get me in favor of, of separate housing. But I do think there's, it's that economic carrots that will hopefully uh, get where we want to go. You also brought up Airbnb earlier. Uh, how do you feel about cities imposing restrictions on short-term rentals? Well, right. Again, for those who are libertarians, I apologize for what I'm about to say. <laughs> for those of you who are probably more uh, pro-rent control, I apologize for what I'm going to say. Look, like a lot of things, the truth is usually in the middle. I, I think we probably do need some re- regulations. It, it cuts all sorts of ways. There's pros and cons to Airbnb, of course. People complain that it takes rent-controlled units out of the market, or there's transient tenant base, and that creates problems, and there's noise and parties when people rent. And those may be all accurate and true anecdotally. But I think, like any regulation, we need to just be thoughtful about it. There are always both intended and unintended consequences. I believe capitalism works in general. I'm a market person. So the question is, how do you balance out the market? And obviously, there's demand for these units. And it's terrific with the regulations. Cities don't like Airbnb if they're not going to pay the, what's called the TOT, the transit occupancy tax. As we all know, when we check out of our hotels, you know, we usually get all pissed off by the resort fee, the Wi-Fi fees, and these taxes. It's bull, right? I'm sure we've all had that reaction at one time in our lives or others. So cities love hotels. They don't like Airbnb, not because of what they claim. Yeah. It's because they're losing the TOT. So to me, we have to think about those things, and maybe I can get where the city's coming from. If we require landlords to register and pay the transit occupancy tax, we create other reasonable regulations that are balanced, where we let the market speak, but we don't want uh, you know, too many problems. Uh, I think there's a balancing act. So I'm in favor of regulation, but thoughtful regulation, and I probably have to think about what cities have done and whether I think they're good, good rules or, or bad. I'm sure some are doing it better than others, and we hopefully can learn from mistakes that are made. I'm interested to get your thoughts on the real estate market overall right now. So I've started seeing commercials from mortgage lenders. Um, Rocket Mortgage comes to mind talking about <laughs> how easy it is to get approved and qualified. Does that yeah. worry you? It, it yeah. sounds a little scary to me. Yeah, you know, I... I I talk about it in class, and, and, and this is what I always say, is that history is just uh, it's just different people doing the same shit over again <laughs> and making the same mistakes. And, you know, part of it, it, there's a broader question that you're getting to with the way you framed it to, whether it's, you know, rocket mortgage and you get a mortgage approval in like three nanoseconds with no documentation or something like that, oh, which is, you know, I'm not sure is exactly the case. But the reality is, is, is that for you guys, looking back, we're in you know, 2019, obviously, and let's say 2008 when Lehman f- 
Bell, most of you guys were probably in high school, I'm guessing, something like that, and said with no disrespect at all. But it's what happens, right? Is you saw your kids, the financial crisis of 2008 will be like a textbook footnote. And what, yeah, whatever, I heard your story. They can't appreciate what happened. So look, that is what you're getting at. I would tell you a couple thoughts, and, and I probably ramble too much, but look, um, we've had, as I mentioned earlier, the longest period of economic growth in the U.S. without a recession. So you don't have to be an economist or a Ph.D. or something like that to understand that we are going to have a recession probably in the next year or two just by virtue of the way cycles work. Uh, I don't see anything this year, thankfully, and I think I'm, I'm probably consistent with most folks these days. 2020, we'll have to see what happens. But uh, I don't see a bubble. That's the good news, you guys. There isn't a bubble. Uh, the lenders are being overall more cautious, more thoughtful in the underwriting. So while they may claim to be able to give you a quick loan approval and all that, they're still requiring you to put some decent money down. You guys know the prices are high, so that's kind of limiting transactions on its very it's very face a little bit. So I'm not too concerned about any kind of bubble. What I would say, I did predict, I did predict that 2019 would be a soft year for residential real estate overall. Why is that? Because again, the things I mentioned, just because first of all, affordability is a problem. I mean, you just get to the price point where it's exhaustion. I mean, how, how deep is the market for homes in San Francisco of $1.3 million median home price? In LA, the staffs are kind of bogus because the way they measure it in Los Angeles. But if you're talking West Los Angeles, again, same kind of yeah. figures, right? How deep is that market? You don't have a lot of new supply, certainly for single family. So I just felt the market would slow. Interest rates have been volatile. Uh, as, as you probably know, we had a real spike in rates last year, which have now come down again. Mortgage rates are back to 4%, which is good. But I just think it's just a question of sort of exhaustion cycles, timing, and um, you know, at some point you just hit a hit a wall of affordability. So for all those reasons, I, I expect prices to stay flat. I don't expect a big bubble, uh, a bursting, or anything like that. So that's maybe bad news if you guys are hoping for some yeah, cathartic event yeah. for prices to drop a lot. I guess I just don't see it. Foreign capital has trickled. I mean, the Chinese and some of the Asian money has slowed down. Uh, that was a huge driver of our markets. So that's certainly slowed down in a couple of years because of the capital controls out of the PRC. So that has having a slowing effect on some of the markets that are heavily um, Asian driven. But, it, you know, in all in all, slow, could see modest price declines, flat to 3%, 5% declines, but nothing major. And I would expect that to persist in a 2020. And we'll see. In addition to real estate, you also teach corporate financial reporting. By all accounts, it's one of the most popular classes at Anderson. Um, I have a CPA background myself, so it was very surprising to hear how popular it is. Um, what do students get out of your class? Well, let me, okay, hang on a second. So let me just, with that, with, you can't just go right into the questions with that kind of commentary. Let me just tell you, let me just start the way I often start with that class, which is, look, the most important accounting function in life is that your satisfaction is the outcome less expectations. Okay, so let's just start there. So your question hits, hits the nail on the head. When you guys take an accounting class, it's probably up there with a class in like decision sciences or stats. You have no expectations whatsoever. In fact, you're expected that you're gonna be bored out of your gourd and, uh, and whatnot. And so when the class actually is better than you thought, you're like, wow, that was great. <laughs> Teaching real estate or entrepreneurship, maybe these classes, 
with a little more sex appeal, venture initiation or whatever, you come in with a much higher expectation, let's be candid. And yeah. if the class doesn't hit those expectations, then you're maybe disappointed or underwhelmed. Uh, I would tell you that I have been a great beneficiary of, um, of, of that premise. You know, it's, it bums me out even to hear you say that because I love accounting. I think accounting is fascinating. I think it's just maybe not taught right or doesn't have the best PR team yeah it, well look you know as corny as it sounds I, this is going to be so corny that you know counting is the language of business right I mean uh -huh. but you stop and think whatever y'all are going to do with your lives and, and whatever you guys have doing and I'm sure doing a lot of great stuff you know how are you going to ultimately measure whether whatever you did, whatever investments you made, whatever firms you may start or whatever, were actual value creators. It comes down to accounting. What investments you make? I don't care if it's in real estate or if it's in the equity markets. Look, I always say to you guys, I, I, I sort of take polls informally when I'm talking about certain companies that you guys love, the FANG stocks, right? I always call the FANG T, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, NVIDIA, Google, and Tesla. <laughs> um, maybe some of you guys are looking at Lyft or some of these IPOs, these unicorns. You can buy stock in those companies once they're public with doing zero DD. You can just, hey, you're in class, you're bored by Paul Habibi or whatever. And so you whip out your smartphone and you go, you know, I'm just going to do some trading in class. And you could do that without reading a damn thing, without doing anything. And I ask students with some of the companies that I cover, and those of you guys who've taken my class know that Tesla is, uh, is among them I talk a lot about. Take a guy like Elon Musk. And I've had a lot of you guys who've owned stock in Tesla. And I always ask, have you guys actually read the 10K? Have you looked at the financial statements? And I will tell you, over, I've been teaching Tesla and SolarCity cases before that for at least five years. And I can tell you the answer is no one. Not one single person has done that. And I go off on a rampage. And I, and I say, you guys are MBAs. How can you do that? It's not just about vision. It's about the numbers. Tell me about margins. Tell me about cash flows. Tell me about ROI. All the shit that you guys are spending 50-something thousand bucks a year learning. You're not actually looking at the accounting data in any meaningful way. You don't look at the footnotes. Well, then you should be, you know, you're, you're cheating yourself and you're not doing yourself a favor. And I think by the time I'm done with the class... I always make this promise. I know I'm not an easy teacher and I'm not an easy grader. And I, on my final exam, people have complained about it for years. But I always tell you guys the same damn thing. I know that by the time I'm done, you guys will be able to read a Q or a K in an intelligent, thoughtful way and make a lot better investment and, inform, and informed business investment decisions. And that's why students like the class. I, I meet that, that duty, that obligation that I have for you guys paying for the tuition. Now, whether you do it after you're done with the class, well, that's up to you. But at least I hope I give you that skill set. And I hope I give you at least a better appreciation of accounting, if not a passion for it. It, it sounds like you're doing it I, just by talking to people. So I read the syllabus for corporate financial reporting. <laughs> didn't take the class, but I did read it. You mentioned in your section about revenue recognition, how investors need to be better informed about how tech companies are recording revenue. Can you share some examples about how this differs across companies and anything that jumps out of you about impacting wow. potential violence? Uh, so let me, let me read. I like this question. I'm going to rephrase the question. So I... Um, <laughs> I was too lazy to take your class. No, I didn't. Yeah, no, it's all good. You know, here's what I would, the way I would frame it, is if you think about tech companies, growth companies in general, right? and this is where you all have a lot of great background from the other courses that you're taking. If you think about, let's talk about Tesla, for example, okay? Classic, right? Tesla, new product in an evolving market EVs, it, it, competing, I mean... No one in their right mind. I guarantee you no one listening to this podcast and not a single person is saying, you know, I'm going to start a car company. Oh. Okay. Who in their right mind would start a car company? 
high capex, high cyclicality, typically trades for book value or price earnings ratios that were in you know, single digits. They're yawners. I mean, and they're and you know they've most of them been bankrupt at least once, right? Um, you you think about other companies are trying to disrupt, right? Uh, certainly on the hardware side, this is definitely true. How do you how do you give people comfort? How do you develop credibility that your company is real? It's sustainable. Tesla might be gone in a few years. It wouldn't shock me. I think another company will buy them. Frankly, that's my prediction for Tesla. Ultimately, they'll be absorbed by another car company at some point. But think about it. If you were going to buy a new Tesla, a Model S or an X, not the Model 3, let's say when they first came out, we're talking $100,000 and up. Now, okay, maybe it's a rich dude or dudette in Silicon Valley and you are willing to take this risk. But you want to know, at least have the belief that this company is going to be around. You know, get service and you're going to have good. Well, that creates some pressure on startups, on tech companies to show revenue, to give Wall Street comfort that this is a real company, that they've got the ability to raise capital and not completely destroy it on an ongoing basis. So that's why, to me, revenue recognition, look, it's always an issue for every company. But for any company that's trying to gain traction, develop credibility, convince the existing and prospective customer base that they're not just fly by night, they're the ones that can push the envelope, okay? I can't imagine the pressure that Elon Musk is under right now. The Model 3 appears to be, as I predicted, and those who took my class, flagging. Demand seems to be flagging, and the first quarter was dreadful. All right. So think about that. What does to, now? If you're in line, we're thinking about buying a Model Three. You're like, well, gee, maybe the Model Three is not going to be what everyone said. And, and so that's the way I think about these issues. It's not, and maybe that's why people like the class too. Accounting doesn't happen in a vacuum. Yeah. Revenue recognition. If I went over the rules with you guys and the SEC rules and the new rules that are evolving, you you'd yawn. Well, you could swallow a Tesla with that yawn. Okay, <laughs> you'd be so bored. But if you put it in the context of why it matters. And this, the way I'm sort of framing it, you go, oh, no, that's interesting. Yeah, that, let me think about that. Because it does. It affects the confidence of investors, consumers, and others. And in tech and disruptive businesses, I think that's really, really crucial. So you mentioned earlier the, the tech unicorns. There, there's been a growing number of IPOs of firms that are not profitable. Lyft just went public after losing almost a billion dollars last year. Are investors too optimistic when it comes to these companies? Yes. All Would right. you like me to elaborate? Maybe. <laughs> Yes, there's no question. In fact, uh, if I looked at Lyft's financial statements. I had a chance to look at uh, WeWork's financial statements a few years ago. Um, look, the, yeah, their financials are, are dreadful, and people are expecting, of course, positive cash flows in the future. But look, you guys, you're still at or near the top of a bull market in a strong growth, relatively speaking, economic cycle. Interest rates are low. Cost of capital is relatively low. And so in those sorts of markets, my experience is people are willing to give mulligans to a lot of these companies. A company that I've looked at that I'm, I don't mind telling you, I'm short and very cynical at is kind of called Carvana. You guys have all seen the ads. The financial statements are dreadful, dreadful. It almost, and yet the, it seems like the more money they lose, the higher the stock goes. Netflix has never had positive cash flow in its existence. Again. People aren't, don't really care. I'm telling anyone who will listen. In bull markets, people may not give a crap about accounting. People may not give a crap about free cash flows. And then in bear markets, people care a lot. And 
you mark my words, having been through a few cycles and maybe having less hair than I used to have, the, the reality is it, people say, why didn't I look at that? What did I miss? The dot-com bust. Anyone who was paying attention to those companies realized these were jokes, a lot of them. They were paulhabibi.com, a million billion dollar valuation. You just put your dot-com after your name. Sorry, Paul. I do love you. But in all seriousness, that's the problem. List financials are dreadful. They may have 40% market share, but even at 40% market share, they, they lose a fortune. You can, I'm sure, paint some story for me about how international is going to make it up and eventually they're going to raise prices and this and that. But we'll see. We'll see what the elasticity of demand looks like and everything else. So um, anyways, the, so the short answer is yes. The longer answer is a lot more words. But both are, I think, yes. <laughs> so I get the sense that you have some strong views on the economy and regulation. So what do you think about the amount of student loan debt in the economy right now? That's yeah, a, a disaster. By the way, you can I have strong opinions, opinions on everything. So for the record, if my opinions uh, resonate with you, thank you. If they don't, I, I apologize. And if I'm right on some of my predictions, you know, you can call me a genius. If I'm wrong, just forget everything that I said. <laughs> Look, student debt is a huge problem. It goes back to me, our earlier discussion about housing. That we're at what three trillion dollars of outstanding student debt, and when I started teaching here in the mid '90s, I think tuition at Anderson was about uh, ten grand plus or minus something like that. Maybe it was twelve, something like that. And now, pay. well, you guys all know, right? So it's quadrupled, quintupled, or whatever, which is far in excess of the cost of you know of inflation. That is not sustainable. That is truly problematic to have this ridiculous high level of student debt for so many things. It certainly puts off the ability to buy houses, for example. The other thing is that, look, you have to sort of segment that, that trillion, those trillions of, of, of debt because for you guys, MBAs, hopefully you'll, you're earning power and, and the jobs you, uh, you take and the, the businesses you create will enable you to pay off that debt and, and service it without a problem. But if you look at some of these s schools, Again, and forgive me in advance, everybody, but you're getting a degree at a, at a private, a good private school, and you're taking on $200,000 of undergraduate debt, and you're majoring in, well, my middle daughter, who I love dearly, majoring in music, <laughs> and majoring in music, and I'm blessed that I can afford it. But if she had to take on debt and major in music, I mean, you know, getting a job in music, I mean, for, you know, we're working very hard trying to help her, you know, figure out where she can find work. That's a problem. And not everyone, I think too many kids go to college. I think we should have more trade schools. Mm -hmm. Why law school is three years? Again, forgive me any JD MBAs or any lawyers out there, but that's a joke to me. Three years is in the teaching, you know, 18th century English law. I mean, it's, 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 we need to change our educational system to reflect the new realities. It costs too much money. We can't have students with this much debt. The implications longer term are very serious. And lastly, they need to rejigger the rules to get out of it. Not that it should be easy. You borrow money. I think everyone would agree we should try to pay it back. But for those cases where through some exogenous events or something that they can't, all their debt through bankruptcy, which also costs a lot of money, there should be ways of getting out of the debt. And right now, you know, it's virtually impossible. So there's a lot of problems with student debt. You think politicians should be talking about something other than uh, immigration at the moment? Well, look, no, I mean, look, look, you guys, I mean, that's a whole other question. Immigration, trade, defense, uh, you know, any number of, these are serious issues which require serious politicians and, and some real leadership, which we're lacking in, in both parties, candidly. Uh, no one has a monopoly on good ideas, but certainly we got a lot of issues that need dealing with, and we're getting distracted by a lot of... Uh, bright lights, put it that way. What's the best way for students to get in touch with you? 
Oh man, well you know I'm uh, I'm on social media, you guys. So uh, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, I'm I'm on Instagram, but mostly as a voyeur. And you guys can call, write, text. I'm old school, man. You know, I'm in my fifties, so I I I uh, you know I have a landline. <laughs> I have landlines everywhere. So um, look, you guys can get a hold of me, and I'm always help, happy to help you out. Remember, just remember while you're this is very important. This is very important. You know, the most important thing I say, well, all your students, Tony Anderson, any advice, any meetings, consulting, coffee, it's, it's on me, it's free, uh, and I'm happy to do it. Once you graduate, you got to pay the alumni <laughs> consulting fee. It's, it is not negotiable. I will just say it's not money. Uh, it comes in a bottle. It's either a decent bottle of red or some scotch, and that usually buys you uh, some good advice, and, and uh, the ROI hopefully will be worth it. Uh, it's much. It'll be much cheaper than my billing rate. Put it that way. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's you guys are, are very welcome. I hope uh, I hope it was worth your time listening to it. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, shoot us an email at andercastla at gmail.com.